Welcome to The Purposeful Project. We help entrepreneurs for free. On The Purposeful Project podcast, we share real-life stories from some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. We like to think our podcast will provide mentorship to those that need it and give you access to the knowledge you need to start and scale a business. To hear these incredible stories, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music or anywhere you listen to podcasts or you can simply visit purposefulproject.com. Nick Jenkins. Nick, welcome to the show. Hello, Simon. It's really great to have you here. Well, I, I, have, I, um, have I missed anything about your background? I mean, of course, Angel no, Investor. No, 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 that's, 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 that's all very, uh, very accurate, yeah. Great. Uh, and I, I guess it's always good for my listeners uh, to perhaps get a gauge of you straight off um, and, and hear perhaps uh, what your view of success is, both personally and in a business. I think over time, <clears throat> I've, I've realized that success is much more of an all, of, of, of an all round um, thing. And, and you, you look at, you, if you focus on success in one very narrow area of your life, it's often at the expense of, of, of others. And so, and so I, I look at success as, as um, um, you know, the, the various pillars of happiness that we have. Do we feel fulfilled? Or do we feel as though being useful? Do we have good relationships? Uh, or, and, and are we healthy? All these things make a successful human being. So I think nowadays I tend to look at, look at is that, are, are we successful human beings? And that can, most other people tend to look at it in a very narrow sense. Do you, have you made money? Uh, so yes, you could be. If you talk about financial success, that's very, very narrow. If you talk about success as a human being. It's how, you know, how have you done? How have you done all round? And and that's a different thing. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I, I again, I've I've listened to so many things that you've you've said in the past. I feel like I know you quite well. You know, one of the things you said before that I liked as well. You know, when you shake someone's hand, you don't want to worry you've lost a finger. So, you know, that whole concept that you can trust people and and that that kind of reputation which I think is very important. It seems to be, of course, very important to you. But I feel a lot of people in business do learn, you know, it's good to tread on people and get ahead. And, and, and somehow that's a measure of success, the, the financial gain or the success of the business. But, but am I right in thinking that you've, you very much care about your reputation? Well, I, I care about doing the right thing. I think a very important part of the quality of life is, is, uh, is conscience. And do you look at yourself and think you've done the right thing? What I've also found is that if you do the right thing and if you behave well, more people want to do business with you. Uh, I, I want to do business with people uh, that I trust. I want to, be, to do business with people that I enjoy doing business with. Um, you know, we spend a lot of our time doing business, so we might as well do it with people that we enjoy spending time with. So, so I think that's quite an important, important element. But getting back to the point about counting fingers when you shake in someone's hand, if you know that someone is a sharp practitioner, you'll always be more careful about going into business with them and also and also making sure you're absolutely covered and so on. So it's just smoother and easier if, if, um, if you do things in the, in the right way. I'm also a great believer, by the way, that, that the best deals are the deals where both parties think they, came, that think they did a good deal. Mm. Uh, it's not about winning. This is not, you know, Trump's view of this would be, <clears throat> in order for me to win, someone else has to die. Uh, and I don't believe that's true. I think, you can, uh, I think the very best deals are deals where both parties feel as if that was a fair deal because you do more of those deals. Every time you do a deal with someone who feels as though they've been shafted, you're never going to do business with that person again. Whereas the person who thinks, right, that worked well, I can do business with Nick, we'll do it again. So, so I think it's, 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 um, I mean, it's not just because, uh, just because I think it's important to be a good person, to be a good citizen, a good human being. I think it's because it also leads to, uh, it's like, like looking after your customers. You, don't, if you can... You can shaft your customers once, but they'll never come back. So, so why not just look after them? And the same applies, I think, to business partners and investors. 
if you look after them, if you treat them well and treat them honourably, um, then um, they come back. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point and a nuance that I, I really love my listeners to pick up on because I think, I know myself, I, I've started 18 companies. I have done deals with people and didn't realise that they were sharks. Um, you know, didn't realise that they were bad people. How, how do you gauge that? How do you actually discover that before you end up, okay, for example, investing in them? I mean, you can't always tell until you're in there in the business with them. You, you can look at the deals they've done in the past. Um, you can... Uh, I, I do a little bit of research into the people that I do business with uh, as investors um, or in, in any, any other respect. I, I look at their track record, I look at companies they've done. If I see that somebody, for example, if someone's asking for investment and I see in company's house, they've got a long trail of, uh, of, of dissolved, liquidated companies uh, where they've, they've walked off with leaving creditors behind. That's not the style of business I like. Um, so, um, so, so those are the kind of, and, 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 and I suppose after a while you develop a good sense of people and whether or not you think they're open and honest. Um, so I've relied very much on that. Well, I, I got into business with my wife and fell in love with her during working with her because she was just so honest and authentic and, and real. And uh, I think business does bring out the best and the worst in people. But if, if like you just said there, I mean, I remember my wife, she, we, we had a moment in 2003 when SARS hit Hong Kong, we were in trouble cash flow wise. And my wife was like, let's pay everyone first and we'll worry about ourselves second. But you only learn about someone's true value sometimes at that very moment, that very crunch moment. Yeah. And, have you and, and, and your staff will always remember that. Oh, t- totally. I mean, a lot of the people that we work with today are friends of ours still today. You know, I think that, yeah. that's, that's, but it's, it's also, but you just don't know. I've also worked with people that don't have a trail, don't necessarily have a footprint of having done anything wrong, got into business, into business with them only to find out that they are, they are bad. I think a lot of my listeners out there want a co-founder, for example. I know you, you'd started Moonpig as a single founder. I mean, do you feel like, you know, that, that was an advantage being a single founder to you, or do you do you feel like um, getting into partnerships in the future has been something you've wanted to do? How has that played out for you? Uh, it, there, there are two sides to that. <clears throat> one is that if you go into partnership with somebody, on day one, you surrender 50% of your company. Hmm. So by the time you've raised some money and you've been diluted a few times, the danger is that with, say, three founders or even four founders, you end up at a point where the shareholding that you've got in the company isn't worth the time and effort that it takes, the commitment that it takes to drive it through to success. Um, where I started with 100% of it and then worked my way down. Now, a lot of people say, oh, I, I, needed, I needed co-founders because I needed that support. And the way I did it is that I founded it and then I brought in investors um, who were very supportive. So my investor directors, they came in and put, they put money in and that was the reason why they supported it. it the difficulty with going in with a co-founder is that it's, it's unlikely that after five years, that you're both going to have an equal idea of who contributed what to the success of the business. Uh, and then you have the awkwardness of who's actually going to lead this business. And, and, and I've seen plenty of companies that I've invested in where you have two co-founders and you know that one of them is not as good as the other and you have to have that painful discussion. Those two co-founders can't have that discussion between them. Um, so there are there are places where it's worked. Innocent worked very well where you had three founders who had um, who all had, I mean, they, would, they all look back and they think actually they wouldn't have done it without without that so it can work but the advantage of the advantage of being a sole founder is that uh there's one you start off with 100 percent of it um so you'll end up the larger share when you finally get to to exit um and you just have to find other ways to bring in the support um and the mentoring that you would otherwise get from co-founders 
one of the reasons I, I do this podcast is to give people kind of, a, I guess, two sides of the same coin view, give, give them balanced insight. And, and what you're saying now, I actually agree with it, although I would say that for me, I, I did a 50-50 venture with someone and if I hadn't done it, I would have 100% of nothing. So yeah. you know, I, th- I, I actually found that bringing in a partner to kind of compensate my weaknesses um, helped. I mean, I, I know a lot about you. I feel like you, 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 you have not that many weaknesses. You're quite rounded. Um, just my instinct. You understand branding. You understand so, finance. Sure, thank you. Um, um, but it, it, it was. Um, I, I, I was very comfortable. I was very comfortable being a uh, being being a sole founder, um, and um, I didn't feel as though. Um, there were, there were some aspects of business. I mean, you mentioned earlier on the introduction about, about the importance of, a, of an MBA. And, and <clears throat> I, I'm not necessarily sure how much I rate an MBA normally, but, but if you want to set up your own business, doing an MBA is very useful because it fills in all the gaps. It gives you enough to bluff in most areas of business. Um, you don't learn much, but you know where the books are anyway. And, and it also just gives you enough confidence to realize that most business is common sense dressed up in jargon. And, and, um, I, I, I had no experience of marketing before I started Moonpig, uh, but Moonpig is primarily a marketing business. Uh, but I, I sort of had enough, I knew enough to bluff um, from, from, the, from the course to realize there's no, there's no science to it. it it's, it's, uh, there's, no, sorry, there's no magic to it. it, it, it's, um, it it's common sense. And, um, and so that, that gave me the courage to basically learn what I needed to learn about, about every aspect of, of the business. Um, but you know, undoubtedly, you know, some people um, where it where it's very difficult with co-founders is where one co-founder has the money, and the other one doesn't, and then what happens is the business falters. More money needs to go in, and then they argue over well, at what price does that go in? Um, and and that's that's often where things start to fall apart. Mm. Um, but, the, but you know, a lot of these things can be can be solved I, I, nowadays. When I invest in a business that has many several co-founders. I insist on a on a, a shareholders uh, agreement that binds those founders together. And if one of them leaves early, then they have to surrender their shares at a particular price. So I, I try. I, I find that the importance of of, of uh, the legal work in, in setting these things up is that you're basically having the arguments that you're likely to have at some point while you're still friends. Hmm. So you're 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 deciding the rules while you're also all still getting on very well and before there's a, a large amount of money to fight over. And that's why I was, I think, actually, that, that these things can work, but you do have to set up the paperwork properly so that you've preempted all the little arguments and spats that you're likely to have. You've talked about how, if someone puts in money, how is that going to be priced and, and, and so on. So, you know, there are ways, there are ways around, around it. I think it's, um, a, it's such a key point you're highlighting here for people that are looking to start a business or even grow their business. Sometimes that early day structure will, will hinder you growing. And I, and I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I always think I've, my lawyer says to me and the reason he's my lawyer is people will always accept ink. I mean, ultimately, if people want to do bad things and, and steal from you, they can. And, you know, do you want to then spend lots of money with lawyers going after them? But the legal agreement is really sometimes for the two of you to remember what you've agreed to, right? And definitely, yeah. my, my, my experience has been, a, 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 is that if you don't uh, put that stuff in writing early, people do forget. Plus later, it's actually when the business works, you have real problems, right? Yeah. And, and the, the, it's, it's so important that even, um, that people forget as well. You know, memory is not 100%. And there are many cases where, I look back at, I think I remember thing, things one way, and I go back into in my emails, and I'm quite a meticulous record keeper. I go back into my emails and realize that actually it was totally different. Um, it happened to me only the other day as I was doing my tax return, and I got stung uh, because I realized that I thought 
an agreement was written one way. And when I actually dug out the agreement, I realized it, it actually was drafted. It was drafted actually in a different way than we'd originally intended, but what it meant is I had to pay a lot more tax on it. But, um, okay. but, but it's, it's important to think and do things because I forget. And, and I, so often I come across people who say, oh, well, I was promised that I would get 15% of the business. And, uh, and you think, well, that was a verbal promise, but, but I mean, the, if, you, if, you, if you write that down, it would have said 15% at which point? At, the point? at that point or at the later point, 15% of the exit, 15% at the beginning. You know, yeah, totally. the, the legal, a lot of people ignore the legal side. I think it's always fine lawyers will deal with that. But actually, the one bit of advice I would give to founders is it's boring, but it's really, really important to get it right. Yeah. Even if it's on, as you say, an email, at least there's some record of what's been agreed. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, my favorite yeah. story around that is uh, in Star Wars, George Lucas called up a couple of the actors who wanted more money and said, take less money, but I'll give you a percentage of the profit from the film. And of course, then the film was a massive success and he changed the percentage. Yeah. And so, um, but they all joke about it now because they still made a lot of money from it. But, but you know, it, it's important. Yeah. And, and also it saves friendships, doesn't it? Because there's, there's, there's no, um, well, hold on, George, you told me two and a half percent and you only gave me two. And, and people can have fallouts over these things, right back to reputation, I guess. Yeah. And so your, your MBA itself, um, you, you, these things are always quite rounded, but, but I guess there's also a network there that you, I actually spoke to someone recently, uh, Stepan Galav, if I said his name right, I'm slightly dyslexic. Oh yeah, Stepan Galav, yeah. Mm. yeah and he, um, he absolutely raves about you, by the way, literally um, credits you with, uh, with, with, with making him a success today and uh, your mentorship and support. It was like um, uh, it was like a Nick Jenkins interview. who's just basically talking about you for most of it. But I did find it fascinating. I did find it fascinating, you know, talking to him to get to understand you. And one of the things he kind of talked about was how you you hired him, and he was surprised. Um, so, what is your hiring kind of uh, mechanism? How do you decide? And he said he was surprised because he wasn't probably the most experienced. Um, but you hired him anyway. He wasn't the most experienced, but I looked at his track record. I looked at the things that he'd done, and he had a real entrepreneurial fire. Um, and I look at someone, you know, he, he'd taken himself, aged 18, he'd taken himself, decided that his best future was to get to Britain and get an education there. Um, he'd started off in uh, dentistry. That was the one course he could get into. Um, or or de de dental, dental uh, trained as a dental technician. I think. It, it, it was a way of getting Making people smart is he, how he put it, yeah. He, he, um, he's very, very, he's, and, and he fought for that. And I saw how much it must have taken for him to get from where he was um, to being a very smart, very presentable, got himself, got himself earned enough money to get on the, to pay for an MBA course. Um, <clears throat> there was, he had a real fire about him. He's also incredibly bright as well. That's the, the other thing that's very clear. Is, is, and I think if you start off with somebody who's incredibly bright and has a real fire in their belly, then, then, um, then everything else everything else can happen after. The, other, the great thing about an MBA is if someone's done an MBA, you know, what, you know the curriculum they've been through. So you know that they will understand the things. They, you know what they know, what they, what they will understand. And, and he, he picked things up incredibly quickly. Um, yeah, it, it's um, and it, it's just so nice to hear that you gave gave him so much time as well. I mean, it's just you know, I think that's one of the things that um, that I think more successful entrepreneurs could do. It's it's helping the next generation or helping people up. And like you say, another point I want my listeners to pick up on that you're talking about here, because a lot of my listeners feel this, is that it's not really about the um, network you have or even um, the money you have or, or where you've come from. It's that fire. It is that fire, and I think that is that is the key. The fact that that uh, Stefan actually, you know, worked hard to pay for his MBA was as impressive as the fact that he, you know, he went for an MBA and understood it. And I think that's that's something you're highlighting there that's so important. But I think people would pick up on that are out there right now that think, oh, I, you know, I don't have, 
I don't have that MBA. But if you go out there and hustle, you have that fire, people will help you and people will support you, yeah. right? It's got nothing but, to do uh, with any, your background other than that. And that's important because, because if you've got the money, you can pay for an MBA, you will get an MBA. Nobody who ever, hardly anybody who ever signs up for an MBA course and pays the t- and, and, and buys their ticket doesn't get an MBA. The other thing is there isn't a grade of MBA. It's not like you get a first, second, uh, you know, a first, second, two, uh, two, two, you get an MBA. Um, so I, the fact that somebody has an MBA doesn't, doesn't in a sense say very much to me about, about um, uh, whether they're any good. It, it tells me that they had enough money to go on the MBA. Now, when I discover that, in fact, they arrived in Britain with nothing um, and then made enough money to pay for the MBA, um, that's very different from someone whose parents set them off to do an MBA. Um, so it, it's, 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 you look, look for signs that people have, have, um, have, have fought hard to get to where they are um and um so you know but an mba i wouldn't you know the, the thing, great thing about mba is a good thing to do if you're going to be an entrepreneur and if you happen to have the spare time i wish there was a slightly shorter course frankly you can cram a lot of what you need to be an entrepreneur in, 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 into three months uh, of that but um um but uh it, it gives it gives a useful framework but with that you also need to have you need to have a sort of in, a commercial instinct. And that's one of the things that I would look for in people is do they have a commercial instinct? Can they focus in on what really matters? And some people just can't. Mm. They just can't see it. Yeah. Um, so that's perhaps one of the characteristics I look for in people that I invest in um, and uh, or people that I want to come and work for me is, is can they can they look at a problem and get to the number of it very, very quickly? Again, I think for the audience picking up, you're talking about a lot of elements there that is just you can't train those things. It's very hard to train those things. You, you can build on top of them. Once you've got the fire, you can build on top of it. But if you don't have the fire, so it's all about igniting that fire, right? Maybe finding your purpose or, or finding what you love to do that's going to ignite that fire to make you passionate and, and make you... Yes, I think the, the one thing that you can't... There's two, two things. One is the fire to do it, and then the other thing is the risk appetite. Mm. And... Um, you'll get two people coming out of an MBA course who um, uh, who know um, as much about about business, but if you don't have the risk appetite, you'll probably become a management consultant. You're going to get paid whatever, um, and and you can basically you, you can you can comment from the sidelines as a management consultant. As an entrepreneur, you have to take decisions that um, w- in the absence of perfect information, and that's that's perhaps the most important thing is that you you're very often looking at things thinking. I've got 70% of the answer and someone, I'm just going to make a decision. Do I go with A or B? And your success is very much more about, um, it's not about, it's, it's about the, 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 the number of decisions that you can take and provided that most of those decisions are right. They don't all have to be right. It's just that more have to be right than wrong. Mm. But if you don't take any decisions at all, it doesn't matter how right you are. Um, and that's, that's one of the, one of the things I noticed about some of the people on my course on the MBA is that, is that they would look at a problem and they will come up with a beautiful PowerPoint presentation with, with six possible solutions. But what they would never do is say, we don't know, but let's just go with this one. Um, and I'm going to mortgage my house and take a step into the unknown. And some people are comfortable with that and some people are not. Some people like roller coasters, other people don't. So I think that's the bit that is, um, that is perhaps innate in us and that you will never change. I do think that you can teach someone who has that. You can teach them quite a lot about how to be a better, how to be a more successful entrepreneur. And I would definitely credit my MBA course with, um, if I look at the way I set up Boomvig, I set, I, I, it, it was probably more successful as a result of the training that I had. Um, but were it not for the type of person that I am, I would never have started it. 
Yeah, in part, what we're trying to do with the podcast is uh, and the purposeful project platform that we run is, is provide an MBA to people that can't afford it. And, I, and yeah. I think I think a lot of, you know, the knowledge you're sharing now is, you know, from your from your MBA through to building a business to, you know, that that's that knowledge share is there actually a lot of the time online for free for people these days. It's just not necessarily in one easy to access place. Right. But uh, I think the problem with MBAs is, is, the, is the access quite often. I mean, Stefan is, is a unique case, but um, time and money isn't not always on people's side to go and get the knowledge that you're talking about. Uh, and I, I agree with you. I think there's, there's a lot of this, a lot of the information as well. And if you don't care about the qualification, uh, and, I, and I don't particularly rate I don't, the, fact that, the fact that somebody, I don't, I don't think, oh, because someone has an MBA that they're brighter or more, more talented than, than someone else. I just know what they've been exposed to. Mm. Um, but if someone came to me and said, okay, well, I, this is the curriculum I've taken myself through online, um, um, and then, then that's, that's just as good to me. Mm. And the point you're uh, making about uh, risk is really important too. Mm. I, 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 totally, um, I totally see it in my own businesses. Whenever I'm involved in something, I'm all in. Any investment I make, if the people that I'm investing in aren't all in, then why should I? You know, and, and, and quite yeah. often people will say, you know, I've got some money saved up, but I'm keeping it, you know, for myself and I want to raise money from you because I want to risk your money. Well, you know, that that to me is a red flag, you know, and I, I don't know how you feel about it. But a lot of the time people aren't people aren't all in and they wonder why their businesses don't work. Well, one of the common problems that I have now is I get approached by people who um, uh, who, who don't have any money because they're young and they say, I want to start a business. Um, now here's my business idea and it's, and it's brilliant and I would like you to put the money in and I'll give you 10% of my business. And I think, well, hang on, I'm putting all the money into this um, and I'm, get, I'm getting 10%. But let's say, for example, you decide to, we, we get to a point where we're committed and we put the million, two million pounds into this business um, and we're all committed and you decide, you know what, actually, I think I'm going to step back and do something. It's getting a bit difficult now. I'm going to do something else. Uh, that entrepreneur still has 90% of the business uh, and, and, and yet the, the people who put the money in need to protect their money so they will have to find someone else to come in and run it. So, so, I, so I think sometimes some people, they, they don't understand um, the whole sort of risk-reward uh, ratio. They expect too much at the, um, at the beginning. But similarly, what I would do now with someone like that is I would say, fine, I'll put the money in on that valuation, but unless you're still actively involved in the business, in you have to basically sell your shares back. Um, I, I need that. That it's very hard to get real commitment from someone who has nothing, um, because if you have nothing and you end up with nothing, you're no worse off. Wow. Um, but at the same time, it's unrealistic to expect that people um, who are 25, 26 have anything, have anything to risk. I think it, other, it, other, other than their future, the future holding in their company. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's such a valid point, and I, I want the listeners to pick up on this point because I feel like it's it's actually not about money; it's about commitment. It, yeah. it's, it's about that, you know, and and about that. Um, I mean, I always think I'd rather personally own fifty percent of a successful business like Google than you know than 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 uh, own a hundred percent of a failure, right? So, I mean, in the end, equity is not really that important, but it certainly drives uh, entrepreneurs. I mean, I, I had I had a fifty-fifty venture, for example. I was very happy with it, but in, in part because of something you said earlier. You know, like that person worked just as hard as me in their own way, and yeah. we did that consistently together for ten years. You know, and mm. but to your point, there could have been in any moment um, that person, if they weren't working on something, the resentment can build up. Like, why am I only 50% but you're working, you know, 20% as hard as me, right? But I think it's the all-in feeling that they put their reputation on the line, that this kind of like isn't, there is no plan B, I think is sometimes how it's explained in the startup world, right? Yeah, I mean, certainly in the case of Moonbeak, I had, um, I'd invested um, by 2003, I think I'd invested uh, pretty much all the money I had. And I, and I made quite a reasonable amount of money in Russia. 
And I, I when, when I came back from Russia, I had probably a, a million quid and a flat in London, and, and a nice flat in London with no mortgage. Um, by the by the time Moonpig finally broke even, I had a flat mortgage to the hilt and no cash. So wow. I was all in. And and there were plenty of times when if someone had said to me, I can make all this go away as if it had never happened, and uh, uh, I, I would have I would have willingly willingly taken that. It's just that I was already so committed, I, I had no option. And that's that's why. And I remember that fight. Um, that that the reason I pushed on when things were difficult, when my own shareholders were saying to me, Nick, this is never ever going to make any money. This will never be a successful business. Um, you need to give up now. Uh, I was or I was deeply committed to it, and I fought. Um, uh, I didn't. I didn't take a salary for five years, um, and uh, so so I yeah I I, I really um, I was really committed. It, it's such and, and if I hadn't been, then I don't think I would have fought as I I, I wouldn't have fought as hard for it. It probably would have failed. It's so important this point, and and I thank you for sharing your story there as well. I've not heard that from you before, and you know putting all your um, your hard-earned money. I mean, you worked in Russia when, I, when the Soviet Union crashed, right? Gorbachev was sacked while you were there. I mean, it must have been a pretty tough uh, business experience, although probably I mean, also enjoyable. It was a wild, wild time. One of the most exciting times of my life. I mean, it's watching the largest country in the world just dissolve um, and then recreate itself in a new in, in a new form. And it was uh, it was utterly wild and very, very exciting. And, and also, the other thing is, I, I was very lucky. I learned Russian at university. Uh, as a as a bilingual, I say bilingual. My Russian wasn't brilliant when I first arrived, but I was I I, I was able to do business in Russian when I arrived, and uh, reasonably fluent when I left. But uh, but uh, so, someone who was everybody who was Russian who spoke English at the time when when I first arrived there was probably in the KGB. So they were Western companies were reluctant to to hire them. It's totally changed now, of course. Um, but but there was a period uh, in um, in the early 1990s when if you spoke Russian, uh, you could be promoted way beyond your ability and experience, um, and so I, I benefited that from, from that uh, to, to some extent, and and uh, and joined a company that I then uh, ended up with a stake in, sold out of, which was Glencore. Um, so that that's what gave me the money at the beginning, um, and I don't underestimate actually the importance in Moonpig, the importance of me having a buffer of cash. I don't think Moonpig would have survived if I hadn't had that buffer of cash because one, I was able to get the idea off the ground to the point that it was more than the idea on the back of an envelope when I went to raise money. And secondly, when there were difficult times, and there were several difficult times when I couldn't find anyone else to put money in, I put the money in myself. And every time I raised money, I put in my bit of that money. So I would say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm in this with you. This is my money. I'm writing this check. And, and that was very important in, in persuading my investors to, to follow on. And when they finally refused to follow on, on the last round of fundraising, um, I was. It, it gave me enough to convince a new shareholder to come in. Um, but when the founders, when no, when none of the existing company are prepared to put any more money into a business, it's very hard for an incoming investor to say, "Well, why? Hang on, you all know about this business, and you're not prepared to put any more money in. So why should I?" Yeah. Um, you know, the, the thing about this, and, and, and I, I, I want my audience. I just don't want them to miss this because I think what my audience might be hearing is, you know. Okay, you've got money, so you can put money in. That's fine. And I think people are missing the point if that's what they're hearing, because what is actually being talked about here is an example I had the other day. Someone said to me, oh, please invest my business. I'm like, okay, sure. But let's just talk about your cost. You know, why do you need this salary you put into the business? And they're like, well, I've got a car loan and I've got this flat and I've got this. I'm like, can you live with your parents? I could, but I don't want to. Could you give up the car? I could, but I don't want to. You're like, okay, look, you know. I'm not asking you to put lots of money in, but at least can you know, can you not take a lot of money out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, and I, 
I've seen that a lot of a lot of my investees have taken <clears throat> they, they, they recognize they've got nothing to put in themselves, but they are prepared to they are prepared to live like like church mice for for two three four years right. um, as a sign of their commitment. And I think that's a really really good point. I, I, I've never I've never asked that question of anybody. Are you prepared to give up your car? But it's a good one, um, mm. and I'll use that in the future. Yeah, well, you know, um, walking is good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the upside. Yeah, it's just some some sign that someone is prepared to recognise that in return for being given the opportunity, there's a massive upside in a business. They're prepared to show their their commitment. The, the, the other really critical thing is, I often get people coming to me and they say, and I realise they've got two businesses on the go. Yeah. Uh, well, no, 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 no. That does not work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's funny you say that because I spent a lot of time in China and um, Jack Ma's very successful entrepreneur out there and. Um, he, he thought it was very clever to have Alibaba, which did really well. But then on the side, he set up another company leveraging Alibaba's resources called Ant Finance, which just yes, went IPO. Yeah. It was bigger than Alibaba, but none of the existing original shareholders, you know, necessarily benefited from. So, so that's the other side, isn't it? And, and, and so you're talking about two things, I think we're talking about. That. One is that, you know, focus. Yeah. People think, that, oh, I'll do two or three things at once. And then, you know, if one of them comes off, isn't that smart? But they're probably missing. And hopefully by listening to what you're saying there, they're realizing actually that that distraction is going to cause all of them probably to fail or all of them to be average. And certainly yeah. for no one to want to back one because they feel that they're not getting all three. Yeah, I mean, certainly there were several points in Moonpix history where I wasn't sure it was going to work. And had I had another business which was doing better, right. I would have been tempted probably to put my resource into that. Yeah, plan B. Forget it. Yeah, it's uh, so so valuable and insight. Yeah, I think I think it's um for the, again for trying to understand. So so Moonpig, you 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 get it up and running. You put your own money in. Did you know you were going to spend this much money? Was it was it kind of a shock to you as you started you know um, investing in the business? Did it? Did it? I, of course not. I mean, if I thought I was going to invest every single penny I had, I would never have started. But um, uh, no, I had an idea of. I thought I I would invest a quarter of my resources into it, and that would raise the money. We get it to a point where. No, it just doesn't work out like that. Nothing works out. Um, 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 it, 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 it's um, no battle plan survives survives the first uh, the first morning. It, 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 it's. Um, uh, but your but your I, business plan is the same. If I look back at your business plan in the early days and now, it's still it's still pretty much the same. Your business plan did stand up. I mean, Mike Tyson's quote: "Everyone has got a plan until they get punched in the face." Right? But I actually think your original plan is 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 still the same. Um, the, the the concept is the same. The, the concept that you can produce a single personalised greeting card using digital printing and the and the internet uh, that, that's very much the same. The margins are very much the same. How much? So <clears throat> when I when I did my first business plan at business school, I projected a business that would take an investment of £50,000. This is the first version of Moonbeam. Um, I, I put together a business plan that would take an investment of £50,000 and it would be worth £4 million after five years. Easy. Um, in the end, I think it took £2.8 million of investment, um, but then it was, well, now it's floating for a billion. So uh, it's, um, um, so so yeah, some, some bits of the, so it ended up being much, much bigger, but it also ended up costing much, much more. And I think part of that was that the, uh, at the time, <clears throat> I probably could have started on a smaller budget and run on a smaller budget. What I also realized going into uh, the year 2000, um, that there was an appetite on the part of investors for what, why fund something small when we could fund something big. And the thing about the internet is that the, it, it is a, a winner takes all environment. And, um, and, and so if you get there first and you do it best, then you will win. And that's, that's proved to be the case. Um, uh, although I think there have been 20 or 30 competitors uh, of Moonpig. Moonpig still has 60% of the UK market. I, I think that's incredible, by the way. And 
I, 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 the other point here, the nuance of this, I, again, I would like the audience to kind of pick up on too, is that I think when you um, when you're building out a business, if you've got the resources to commit to making it work, for example, I, I was talking to a startup founder yesterday who is struggling to do all the different things in their business, and I'm like, okay, yeah. do you have money? Yes, hire people. Oh, I don't want to risk the money, but then you can't scale, you know. Yeah. So, so people get caught in this: don't spend the money you know, keep it back, but then they don't scale. And then someone comes along and does it better than them or or overtakes them or, you know, or does invest in it, right? So it's kind of like that, back to that all in, but there's also an element of what I think what you're talking about there is you took your funds, you had this original plan, but that plan was just a shell, maybe to get you excited about doing it. And then the actual execution meant that, you know, you had to hire people and you did that and and, and you had the resources to do it, but you committed all that you had. I I, I guess it would be interesting if you had, you know, instead of a million in the bank and a a London property, if you had three million in the bank and two London properties, would you have spent more quicker would it would it have been better for it or, or, or not um, as good for it well that, that's interesting what i i tried to raise five million pounds of venture capital at the very beginning of new big and i failed i failed because i was doing it in the spring of 2000 and <clears throat> that was at the time of blue.com crashing and uh then suddenly venture capitalists no longer wanted to invest in b2c businesses and that also probably saved me because if you try to pump more money into a business than it can absorb then you end up just simply overspending it. Mm. And, and, the, and there were a lot of businesses that did that. They took a vast amount of money, they overspent it, and they looked at the results at the end of two years, and they said, right, we now have a business that's only turning over £300,000. This isn't working, let's not carry on. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't raise large amounts of money, so I had to make do on a much smaller budget. So um, we got it going, I mean, so it was 2.7 million over, over, over four years that, uh, that that it took to, to get it going. But, um, but we didn't, uh, we, we weren't, squandering money and i'm sure but the, the danger is that when you throw too much when venture capitalists throw too much money at a small company um they start to waste it um and um they throw large amounts of money at things that don't work when you don't have very much money which we didn't we looked at all the different forms of customer acquisition and we worked out mathematically how little do i need to spend mm. on this channel in order to work out whether or not this channel works for me mm. why spend why spend £20,000 on a, on a Facebook campaign to find out that it doesn't work when you could have spent £2,000 to find out that it doesn't work? Right. And so what we, so we were very ruthless in the way that we, that the lack of money to some extent focused us on, on, on being very, very efficient about working out what to do. It's a very interesting um, balance, isn't it, for the audience again. I, that's a really interesting balance between like having enough money that you can go out there and prove that it's a business that works. And I guess that the moment you brought in investors, they, they added value. You mentioned this earlier. So you kind of wanted them to come in. If you'd had more money to spend on it on your own, again, maybe it wouldn't have been the success that it was, right? So there's an interesting I, I, nuance yeah, there. Investors hold you to account. Um, and um, they, they, were, they, were, they were very, all of my investors were very used. Every single one of my investor directors, and I had four or five of them, every single one of them did something or said something at some point during the first four years that stopped the business from going under. Mm. One person suggested a price rise from 199 to 299. Another person brought in, brought in a critical investor at, a, at, a, at an important point. Um, that investor then, then subsequently persuaded me uh, to move away from only selling humorous cards and to introduce uh, non-humorous cards, serious cards, uh, which ultimately, if I'd stuck with humorous cards, it would have restricted the size of the business to, to a third of what it is. Mm. So um, so every single one of them had done something really, uh, really important and added something. And the, the other thing that they did is they held me to account. Um, I had a bunch of directors at the beginning who were actually very were lovely people, very supportive, but probably maybe overindulgent and didn't push me too much on producing management accounts and, and cash flows. 
the last guy that came in was um, a real stickler for monthly management accounts and um, and holding me to account every month, which I first of all found very irritating. Mm. But after a while, um, uh, after a while, I found it. I used to, I, I, before a board meeting or before presentation of accounts, I would meticulously go through them because the the thing I really there was a little bit of friction between us, this investor and, and me, and and. And I hated him proving me wrong, so I would give meticulously make sure there wasn't even a typo in my in my um, uh, in my accounts. He's interesting. He came up with an interesting point. He he, he picked out a typo in the in the in an Excel spreadsheet, and I said, "Well, it doesn't affect the numbers." He said, "I know, but if you couldn't spot that typo, then you probably didn't stop. Then you wouldn't have spotted a formula error in one in, in somewhere else in, in, in the spreadsheet." So the, the 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 absence of typos to me is an indication. Of the thoroughness of the piece of work, I love it. Uh, that's a lesson. That's a lesson I learned from him, um, and, and I follow that through now. Uh, when people have sloppy spreadsheets, they send to me for management accounts. It's, you know, it's important. It, 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 the, the attention that you show this is an indication of the attention that you showed to the numbers and the formulae and the thought process behind it. Mm. It's um, again such a kind of gem of an insight for people that are thinking about. Um, starting a business or you know for that matter anyone even applying for a job we just put a job advert out we had thousands of applicants you know some people like dear sir dear madam they haven't even taken the time to actually realize who they're applying to you know and that detail then filters through into everything but there's so many bits here that i think are important uh, to just highlight i think the there's a culture right now a headline every day you know this company raised 100 million you know shark uh, gym shark just raised millions and you know all these big title numbers coming up and that's blowing entrepreneurs minds and making them think that they should be doing the same but raising money is not the point right and 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 i have also seen a huge amount of businesses that fail because they had too much money and worse i've seen businesses fail because they weren't in touch with their clients enough for example because they had too much money so in other words they had a layer of people that were actually dealing with the business and they put themselves in 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 an ivory tower because they had the money your example you just mentioned there about your pricing for example if you if you if you had money you may have kept at 199 just to be competitive with the market and you might have never taken that chance to jump to 299 that that is a classic example of actually why it's good to not have money i think there was a re- there was a really important lesson for me in that pricing thing. Uh, when I was doing my MBA, one of the things that I remember from that course was uh, the importance of pricing and how um, the psychology of pricing. Uh, that sometimes you take examples of management consultants who um, who uh, a management consultancy who made more money when they put their daily rate up because people assume that because you're charging a thousand pounds a day, you must be twice as good as the guy who charges five hundred pounds a day. Yep. There's no correlation there, but uh, but but, uh, but you do make more money. And and when I when I set that price of one ninety nine, it's because I personally had this idea that that's how much a card would have cost unpersonalized in the shop. And I thought if I offer it the same price as the shop, but it's a better product because it can be personalized, that would be the right price. <clears throat> the the truth is, I was setting the I was setting the price for the whole market. Nobody else had set the price because it was a very nascent market. Nobody else was doing it. And I was very lucky that I managed to change the price from one ninety nine to two ninety nine. Um, while I was still the person setting the market, because everybody else then followed Vimpy. Mm. Um, what's interesting that happened with Greets in the Netherlands is that they set their price at one euro ninety nine and didn't change it until lots of other competitors had come in and followed at one euro ninety nine. Mm. By which point it was too late for them to change the price, mm. and as a result, they had a they had sixty five percent of the market, but they didn't make any money. Yeah, and um, then you could become like a zombie and, company. You're there working hard and and making nothing. And the, and the, but the difference that it makes to profitability 
when you look at, say, he's charging £1.99, and the, the cost of the card is the same. So the cost of the card was sort of 80p all in, let's say, mm-hmm. and it was cost charging one, one, 150. Um, if you if you move the price to to uh, to, to, to 2.99, uh, that's all extra. That's a pound of extra profit. It tripled our gross, uh, the, the amount of money we were making per card. Mm. Now, uh, so I, I think I did I did my research on you, and and one of the things I like about this story that um, I think I want the audience to also know about is that. In a way, you also you, you took that decision with the mindset that well, if the price and the business fails, it fails. If we don't lift the price, the business fails anyway. So let's go for it. A lot of people out there I know have businesses right now that are struggling for one reason or another because they haven't added a zero to the end of their pricing. And if they do it, if they don't do it, they're going to die. But they're scared to do it because they think yeah. they're not competitive. But if you don't do it, you're going to die. And going for it and risking it all, back to the point earlier, right? That's, yeah. that's a nuance, I think, of what you did that's quite important too. Yeah, but I, I think the other thing is being decisive. Um, uh, you've got to, if you've got to take a decision, take, take it early. Mm. Um, it's, you know, when you're running out of money and you know that you're going to have to let some people go, bite the bullet early uh, because so many people just hold off and hold off and hold off. Uh, and then, then it's too late. I made um, that mistake myself. I know what you mean. Letting people go is always the hardest as well. That's uh, such a tough one, yeah. Yeah, though, though I, did le- I did learn relatively early on that it isn't my responsibility to feed people. It's my responsibility to give them an opportunity to be productive in my company. They can't be productive in my company. Those people will be productive in someone else's company. Right. And, and You're so doing I, them a favor. I, I, You're doing them a favor the, sometimes, yeah. The one, thing, the one thing I do feel very strongly about is that if I'm going to let someone go, you, you, have a, you give them a reasonable notice period and make sure they're paid. The worst thing of all is crashing a business and then not being able to pay people their notice period. Yep, totally. and, and it really irritates me when... When companies go down and they haven't had that conversation about how much money do we need in the bank to be able to pay everybody properly if we shut this down. Mm. What they do is they just keep on driving at 100 miles an hour until they crash into a wall and then they turn to everybody who's loyally worked for them and say, I'm sorry, sorry, but I can't pay your salary at the end of the month. It's because I think there's there's a bit like we're saying about you know the headlines raise lots of money and you know and that's the way there's and then tread on people get ahead there's a lot of these business stuff that's just rubbish and I think one of them is you know the last phone call you make will get you the money you need to go right to the edge um, but I think the, the bit that's missing from that advice let's call it that's out there is that you know do the right thing by your people however so where's the edge. You know, I, I yeah. remember um, uh, someone yeah. um, uh, who actually I really like, so I don't want to say anything bad about them, but they opened up Krispy Kremes in China and uh, they opened it up about 200 stores all at once and Krispy Kremes was everywhere and, um, and, it, and it didn't work. It failed quite dramatically. And, and, I, and I, uh, I, know, I know why it failed. It failed because Krispy Kreme is too sweet for the Chinese palate. But uh, unfortunately, when it collapsed, um, all the landlords, which some people don't realize, sometimes landlords have bills to pay too, right? Alongside yeah. the staff, um, all were, were not paid. And it was almost like, well, that we tried to do something and it didn't work. And, and no, it was totally out of character for the person I'm talking about, actually, because they're really good business people. But, but I think in a way you get infected by this, um, I guess, hunger or, or incorrect training that, yeah, you should stop 30 days before you run out of money, actually, because you've, you've, got, yeah. you know, you've got to do the right thing. But I, don't, I, I think that's I, missing. I'm a real stickler for this in the businesses that I'm involved in as an investor, that uh, in our management accounts, we have a page, which is, I always insist we have a page of shutdown costs. Mm. So we work out how much money, what the notice period for every member of staff is, how much money we would have to pay to landlords, <clears throat> and everything else that we owe. And, and that tells us how much money we need to have in the bank um, below which we would have to have a discussion about whether or not this is a going concern. Because the point at which you want to shut down a business is the point at which you can shut it down in an orderly manner, pay everybody off and just dissolve it. Mm. Um, okay, not everything works, and I accept that not everything works. But if you keep on going beyond that point, mm. if you shut the business down, then you are going to have to let somebody down. 
and yep. uh, or someone's going to have to write a check in order yep. to be able to yep. shut it down in an orderly manner. And I never want any company under my control ever to go down owing anybody any money because it's completely avoidable. Yep, totally. I mean, but that, that... entrepreneurs, of course, are entrepreneurs are always the ones who will, you know, they, they've already put all of their money into it and they will keep on driving at that brick wall until they hit it at 100 miles an hour. And it's down really to the investor directors to say, actually, you know what, we, if we're not going to make it, now is the point that we need to have that discussion. Mm. Um, the point at which we, we can still afford to pay our staff. I hope people are listening to this. People are looking for money from people like Nick Jenkins. Listen to what actually matters. You know, like take out that exit slide and put down shutdown cost slide. Yeah, <laughs> that would say a lot about someone, wouldn't it? That'd say a lot more about someone than an exit slide. But it's it's shocking how much money you do need to exit to to, to shut oh. a business down in an orderly manner. Uh, you know, because and, and it also then makes you think about the terms on which you employ. But if you're having a startup, don't give people six month notice period in their contract because. Because as a startup, you can't afford that. If you don't know that you're definitely going to survive, you don't want to put yourself in a position where you can't honor your commitments. Um, and, and so although it seems very, I'm sure there are plenty of people who love to be all lovely and cuddly and furry to their staff at the beginning. Um, but, uh, and therefore they give, you know, oh, you can have as much holiday as you like, we'll give you six months notice and so on and so on. That's all very well to say that on paper. <clears throat> but when you're in trouble, Six months worth of salaries is a lot of money to have to have in reserve before you shut the business down. Mm. Um, so, um, so, so, so I'm very careful to make sure that I don't make promises I can't keep. It's interesting you mentioned something earlier that I just want to uh, kind of um, go back to for a second. You mentioned, um, you know, you screw a customer once, they won't come back. I wonder if that's changing. I see how Facebook's treat, treated its customers, for example, and sold data <laughs> and not had a problem. I was just reading about Topshop and, and what's happening there. You know, they had the gift vouchers, and as soon as they went um, into bankruptcy, the gift vouchers were only valid if you spent double the money. You know, yeah. the customers were still going in, and instead of having the gift voucher for £20, they had to spend 40 to get the 20 But yeah. that wasn't the original. It was given to them as a gift, right? <laughs> so it was yeah. not, you know, here's a gift for £20, but only if you go and spend £20 in the store. <laughs> so, you know, the whole, the whole, but I feel like people are still going in, into, in, you know, still, they're, still, they're still loyal to Facebook, for example. They're still using Facebook. So do you think it, that's it, changing? They're, or? They're, they're not loyal. They just continue. I mean, people still fly on Ryanair. Uh, you know, whereas Ryanair's great, you know, it, their CEO used to really annoy me the way that he would he would say, you know, it's actually, I, I can stand at the top of the ladder as people get into the plane and spit it in their face and they will still fly Ryanair. Yeah, that's uh, ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's that Trump, I yeah, can stand in New York City, shoot someone and I still get elected. I mean, it's, just, yeah, it's total disrespect but, for the clients, isn't it? But it's not that I have any loyalty to Ryanair. It's just that, you know, some people look at their wallets and they think, yes, okay, but if, if you're that mean to me, you're going to have to be really cheap for me to for me to overcome my <laughs> uh, objections to being to, 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 to giving you any money. So, you, you, yes, you won't lose all of your customers, but you won't your customer, you won't have any. Lo- that's not loyalty. Mm. That's just a, cho- a price choice. Well, that's fr- that's free. That's the trick of free too. I mean, not that Ryanair's free, but it, you know, sometimes they pitch it as a pound to go there here and there. But of yeah. course, you know, it's the it's the power of free, which Facebook, you know, kind of pitches. But um, but it, it is it is definitely interesting the whole um, you know uh, the business modelling. I guess what what do you think of this? Everything's free. The internet's free. I mean, even doing a podcast, it's funny. People are like, oh, you know, it doesn't cost you anything to do a podcast. I've got four people working on this. You know, like this costs money to produce. I think I think somewhere along the line, um, the business model got skewed way back in early two thousands when people decided that if you could, things that could be downloaded ought to be free, and it's caused a real problem. Um, if you look at um, app developers, you think about the the, the number of the, the millions of, of man years of, of development that goes into 
developing apps that, that, you know, that are then given away for free. And people expect apps to be free. And then they get a little bit miffed when they're asked to pay for something. But if you don't pay for something, who's going to pay to develop these things? I think what will happen is that, um, that so many people have gone into this thinking, okay, if I develop it and give it away for free, I'll worry about monetizing it later. And that's fine if you happen to be one of the, 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 the one in a million business that makes it through and survives and, and gets big enough, like Tinder, for example. Uh, but if, but, it's, it's, but it, what it means is that thousands of businesses go under um, in trying to get there. And eventually everybody works out, you know what? I'm not, I mean, I, I'm very skeptical of app development um, if that app is not going to be paid for from the beginning. And I'm not going to have a, uh, I, and I can't see a revenue model from the very, very beginning because I've just seen too many apps being developed, developing a really wonderful product um, that, that people want and people want to use, but nobody wants to pay for. I, I invest on Dragon's Den. I invest in a business called Double, which is a double dating app. And it was a, a brilliant concept, very successful. Uh, we had whole clusters of people dating all over all over Britain on the thing. Basic concept was that you would go on this um, with a friend of yours uh, and, and, and say a pair of guys would meet up with a pair of girls for a drink. <clears throat> and it was kind of safety in numbers to some extent. And, and also, you know that there's going to be a bit of banter because you're there with your mates. And it's all a bit more relaxed rather than one person facing another person across the table they don't know. So it was very popular as a concept, but it started out as premium and we just never managed to get anybody to pay for it. So it was successful. And one of the lessons I've learned now is that not only do I want to work out, do people want this product, but are they willing to pay for it? Mm. Uh, and and, it, and it's it's um, like paying for news. I, I, I don't mind paying for news because I know at some point, somebody has to pay a journalist to go out and pick up new news. A lot of other news services will merely collect whatever news is available from other from, from other people's journalists and, and repackage it and spit it out. But at some point, somebody needs to pay for a journalist. Mm-hmm. Much the same as someone needs to pay for the, you know, as you say, for your team to put this together. Yep. It's content. It costs I, money. I, I think there's there's such a deep subject here. And, and what I kind of sum it up as, if we don't fix this problem, you end up with companies winning who are doing evil things with your data. Um, because that's the yeah, only way they yeah. can pay the bills. And so, yes, so you're right. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, it's a bit like with, um, with, with influencers, eventually they, they to put the time and effort in, they, they, they need to put their promotions in. And, um, and, and I, I don't have a problem with the idea of, um, of uh, free content paid for by my willingness to watch, uh, to watch adverts, for example. Um, you know, we had ITV, I was a child growing up, we had ITV for years, fine, free content, and we have to watch an adverts. Yeah. Um, uh, but 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 I but I but I do think that the eventually people will people who are thinking about developing apps will look at the the, the track record of the the tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of, of businesses that have started trying to do something that have gone under wasting lots of man hours yep. and, and people won't be prepared to do it free anymore. Yep, and uh, I mean I I think also the problem with the way free is operated right now and then people monetize on the back end when people do things genuinely for free. There's almost like, what's the catch? There's become a cynicism. So you've got half of people don't even realize they're getting robbed. And then, like, for example, we offer free help, you know, one-on-one sessions to help people with entrepreneurship. At the beginning, they're like, you know, first of all, it's got no value because it's free, right? And then you have to actually deliver it to them, prove it has value at the end. But there's also, like, skepticism. Okay, so what are you going to do now? Like, sell my data to someone? You know, like, suddenly, if you want to do 
philanthropic things you want to give education for free for example there's there's almost like a commercial back end that you're also fighting against i mean that's one of my problems with with the education system especially the private school sector there is almost like a a a push against anything that might possibly be free and give people that can't afford an education a private school level free education because that would affect their monetary uh, rewards right but so there's this i actually think we're fighting for for the fabric of how business is done through these new business models right now yeah well so people expect free banking um, mm. But then they complain, and so 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 the banks respond by that to, to that by saying, "Fine, okay, we'll we'll give you free banking." Clearly, you've got to support the bank somewhere. Um, and then and then and then they they say, "Well, you know, my bank, my it is, it's very difficult to get through to my bank, and I can't find anyone to speak to." Well, of course not, because they've got no money. To if you're not prepared to pay for banking, they have no money whatsoever to to, to pay for the staff to to um um. So talking about being interrupted by three year olds and stuff. Yeah. No, no problem. I, I, I am, I'm, I'm at the library today to avoid my three-year-old doing the same. So uh, absolutely great. How, how, you, 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 you're like me. We had children yeah. late in life. This is another thing I like to talk about when founders are listening in. You know, like I, my, my brother was 19 when he had his first child. He had two. And a lot of the time he complained that yeah. he couldn't go and yeah. do his business and do stuff that he wanted to do. And he somewhat resentful. I hope, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that today. He's somewhat resentful that he had to give up a lot of his uh, freedom to, to look after his children. You've done it the same as me. We kind of a little bit later in life had children. What, what's your experience with that? Good, good way around to do it, uh, you think? Well, I'm very, I'm very glad I started a business when I didn't have any dependents. Yeah, I don't know how people do it. I, I, uh, I, I, some I, sort I, of award I, people now, need. Now, now I know. Uh, now I know. Uh, now I know how difficult being a parent is, uh, and how time-consuming it is, and and, and it's um, yeah. I, 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 it's not surprising that a lot of people get to a point in their life when they they get married, they have a child, and, and making the leap of becoming an entrepreneur is too much. Yeah, you, you have to extinguish the fire a little bit, I guess. I, I feel it. I mean, I had my three-year-old this morning, Daddy, Daddy, let's go out and play. I'm like, nope, got to go interview Nick Jenkins, sorry. It was like, what? Who? Why? You know, like, you know, it's, it's very hard to explain, right? It's um, Hopefully you'll listen to this in 10 years' time. It is, and, and it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, occasionally you see stories in, in newspapers when some business tycoon is getting divorced and they say, you know, that the, fam- the family provided the support to enable them to, to, to focus on the business. That's a lot easier to do without a family. Much <laughs> easier. Uh, you have no one else to think about. The, 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 the other, the most important thing is that it's very easy to shrug off your own misfortune. Um, I'm quite philosophical about it. I, I sort of think, well, you know, if I, if I was reduced to zero, if I lost everything on my own, I'd, I'd find a way. I'd, 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 I'd see it as a new challenge, to be honest. I'd, yeah. I'd think, well, okay, um, I've got a decent brain. I can I can figure something out. I'll, I'll be fine. I, I don't I didn't worry about that at all. It's harder when you have to turn to your family and say, "I'm sorry, sorry, but because I messed up at work, I, we're going to have to move out of this lovely house and go into a cardboard box, and um, you're going to have to change school, and yeah. we can't buy you any new clothes." Totally. That is tough. Yeah, that's, to- that's totally true. I mean, that's that, that the stickening there I want people to pick up on is that, you know, do it while you're young, do it while you haven't got the responsibilities. I think sometimes when people have the responsibilities, that sometimes when the fire comes, because then they've got to provide, and it's not just about, yeah. you know, getting enough money for the weekend and going out anymore, and it is about providing, then they want to earn. But in a way, you know, you've got to act like, I think, that you've got that all coming when, when you're young, before you've got yeah. it all coming. And, and I, so I agree. And you were saying earlier about, you know, that question you asked of somebody, are you prepared to live with your parents um, uh, for, for a bit? Well, actually, when you know when you're younger, you can afford to you can afford to live on on next to nothing. Yep. If you're working, if you're working all the hours of God sends anyway. You're not spending any money. So, so it's it's um that and and if everything goes wrong, that the end is not much worse than where you started. Yeah, uh, I think it's also it's really important. You can learn a lot of lessons when you're young. But start if you start a business when you're young, even if it doesn't work, 
you'll learn enough about doing it that the second time you do it, you get it, you, you'll, you'll do it better. But, um, the, the point I would like to add to what you've said as well, I think is really important. Um, and, and you can agree or disagree with me, but I, I, I think that, you know, I've got a three-year-old, you've got a three-year-old. I think when you, when you have a child, what I've noticed is actually my child doesn't give a shit where he lives. You know, like no, he, he, no. He, he can tell if I'm happy or not. I, can, I never lied to him. If he says, are you okay, then and I'm not feeling great, I tell him the truth because he can tell. So he'll just doubt me if I tell him I'm fine and he, and he knows it's not true. So I never lie. But he can tell. And I think, you know, if I'm not enjoying what I'm doing every day, if I'm not fulfilled, the money in the bank, frankly, the nice school, uh, the, the house, none of it will matter. So, you know, people out there that do have kids, I still think it's, you know, worth going for it. You know, like if you can get your partner on board uh, to risk it all, it's still worth going for it and, and make sure that you, you know, fill your own bucket because that will ultimately, I think, project into your children. Do you agree? No, I, I, I completely agree. I think the, the other problem with children, it's one, one issue that you have that as an entrepreneur, if you get more successful, is, is you look at your children and you think, well, if you grow up with all this and you think that's normal, mm. happiness in a sense is a comparison of what you're used to with what you've got now. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the more the more you provide uh, when your child is young, the more the, the, the more you're setting them up right. for disappointment later on. Yeah. Um, because because they, they, they get a, get a sense that there's a danger that they get a sense of entitlement that well this is what's normal. It's yeah. I, I have house, that with my son already. Book. You know, every day is like, can I get a book, Daddy? I'm like, you know, no. But he gets, you know, definitely. It's so true. I mean, I just said to my crew here before the podcast, I'm going to make sure I spend all my money before I, I die and, and not necessarily leave it to my son because I don't think I, I I think it's good. Like you said earlier, it's good to actually have nothing. Realize that's not the end of the world. Actually realize that that's not what's important anyway. And kind yeah. of build up from that point. I'm not saying my mother kicked me out at 15. I wasn't happy at the time, uh, but I actually thank her now. You know, it kind of woke me up to 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 yeah. the real world, and and I and I couldn't agree. Well, more. you know, similarly, I mean, when I when I left, I left school at I took a year off between school and university, and and, and went off to uh, I, I went off to London on my own. I I got some job. I found myself a flat, and I look back now, and of course, it, to me, it's that seemed perfectly normal. But I look back now at other 18 year olds. And um, whose parents would have gone down to find them a flat, would have paid the rent and so on. But that year of complete financial independence, where I went off, made my own money, uh, covered my own costs, stood me in really, really good stead. But I, I mean, I didn't think about it. I just thought, well, that's what I've got to do. Um, no one else is going to pay for it, so that's what I've got to do. Mm. Uh, and so I think that that's um, you're right. That that um, uh, having to do something is is uh, is an important part of growing up as an individual. Totally. I'm going to ask you a question now that um, I didn't give you an advance and we can cut this out if you feel uncomfortable answering it. But I, I was reading on Wikipedia um, that you took home uh, from Moonpig sale 42 million pounds, um, but your net worth uh, is 150 million. So what did you do between then and now? How did you grow your net worth? What, what's your well, that's, 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 that's journalism for you. I, I wish I had a net worth of 150 million, but I don't. Um, so, uh, no, the, the 42 million was correct. Wikipedia's got it wrong again. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I haven't read. I don't. I don't, I don't like looking at, at things like that. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, they they even have all the dragons on Dragons Den. They've actually listed them in like value order. And I think Deborah Meadon will be annoyed. Let's just say that you know, like it's it's put them in order of, of net worth, um, which I thought I, 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 I've, I've said no, no. I mean, the the, the, the I need to correct. Uh, well, I, I I don't know. I've never got involved with, with correcting it. It's a bit annoying when when people come out. That was the, that was how much the business was sold for, but it's not how much I got out of it. Right. Uh, the 42 was great. Um, right. No, it's, it's just fascinating, isn't it? How it's also, again, it's, it's, it's the media a little bit spinning things. and, and um, But equally, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not just saying this. Um, you're definitely one of my favourites on Dragon's Den. Why did you stop Dragon's Den out of interest? Well, there, there, there were two things behind it. One was that um, 
It was great fun doing it for two years. Really, really good fun. But you do take on quite a lot of businesses. And the problem is they're all quite small. They're quite small businesses. And they're, they're not businesses that are going to – financially, they're not going to change my life. Uh, so, But the commitment that you're putting into that is actually stopping you from doing other more important things. So I, 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 I'd probably spend my time about 50-50 split between doing non-profit things and for-profit. Uh, but what I realized is I wanted to spend – I wanted to spend – more time on fewer, bigger investments rather than lots and lots of things. The other problem is that in Dragon's Den, you have to invest across a wide variety of sectors. Mm. And that actually makes no sense as an investment um, thesis because what I've realized over time is that the reason why things, when you see a business in a sector that you don't understand, they will always be more appealing because you don't know why they're going to fail. Mm. Whereas when you know something about a particular sector, um, all the experience of the other businesses that you've looked at feed in and you think, right, okay, I know where I can add value, or I know if this is going to work or not. Um, so that was part of it. I think the, the other thing was that they, they like a change every once in a while. Sarah had to leave anyway. Um, she, she, could, she, she was spending too much time with her job, and they normally, they normally want to, two, two people to go, and I was kind of ready to, ready to, to, to go at that point. Um, I was always waiting for you two to start a business because there was definitely, uh, you know, you had the similar mindsets and always had yeah, similar thinking. Yeah, and Sarah and I did all very well. We, we, we did a business together, uh, Sublime Science we did together. Oh, okay. Before, but, you invested um, in two companies together as well, right? Uh, just the one, that, the one, only one that went through, which was Sublime Science. Oh, sure. okay. Two on the show, but one that went through, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I really enjoy working with Sarah. We, our minds work very similarly. Mm. I, I really enjoyed working with Deborah as well. I would have loved to have done a business with Deborah. Um, she's a wonderful person. Yeah, I, I, I follow her on Twitter and uh, pretty much want to retweet everything she says. I, I think the, the bit that, that Dragon's Den never gets over is actually quite what a sort of uh, a very kind and funny person she is. Mm. Um, I mean, she's a very deeply principled person, um, which is the thing I love about her. But she's, she's also very funny. Um, and uh, we, had a, we had a great laugh together. Mm. No, I, 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 um, I, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely an interesting model. I, I guess that there is an element of me that wants to update Dragon's Den because it does project this kind of, let's call it dragons versus the startup, which often isn't the case, right? It's very much teamwork. I mean, it's not, you know, uh, I'm taking 50% yeah. of your company and, and now, you know, I, I, but if you do that, you own the company. To your point earlier, some, some of those investments on there, sometimes I, I cringe because I, I feel like it's projecting slightly the wrong image because it's like you take 50% of someone, like you said earlier, you actually long-term as they dilute and dilute, dilute, you're disenfranchising you them. Don't, you end up only, and, and, and there's, there's one lesson, uh, one of the other reasons for stopping is that it basically breaks a number of my angel investing rules. Um, the one rule that I've set up now is that I will never, I don't want to be more than 20% of the money. Um, and the reason for that is that if you're the only person with money investing in a business, when it needs more money, if you don't invest, you're killing it. Right. Um, and sometimes there are times when I've just lost interest in a business. I don't yeah. particularly want to do it. They don't like working with the person anymore. And I don't, not, not that I think the business idea is wrong. I yeah. just I don't want to put any more money into it. And, um, but I don't, I also don't want to be the person that turns the, turns the life support off. I've Whereas, seen it. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen this exact scenario play out and where they've got a majority shareholder and for whatever reason, that majority shareholder doesn't want to... And the problem is the other investors uh, that could come in are nervous. Why would this person who's known you so long and invested in this business in the beginning not want to follow on? You know, like well, yeah. that's that's a big problem for the new yeah. investor coming so, in. So, so my rule of not being more than 20% of the money means that if I if I fall out and, and, don't, and don't go into a new round, but the other four do, fine, everything carries on. If all of us decide not to follow on, then obviously there was a good reason for it. But at least I'm not in this position. And, it, and, it's, and it's even worse. I mean, I have a number of rules about investing. One is that I don't invest in friends and, business, friends and family business um, because it always ends. It, 
it, it, it's awkward when it comes to the follow-on because inevitably all businesses need more money later on. Yeah. Sunday and, lunch gets uh, awkward, but, doesn't it? Like, you, why, you know, pass yeah. the gravy and why didn't you pass me the money to make my business survive? You know, like, it definitely... But because you'll always disagree about, about whether or not the business is going to survive mm. at a later point. And it's a hard discussion to have. Totally. Um, this is the other thing I've noticed in Dragon's Den is people not asking for enough money. And you think, I'm only asking for £20,000. I know, but I know that your business will need a million pounds to do it. And if I'm a 30% shareholder, that means I'm following on pro rata for £300,000 and I don't want to do that. So, so it's, um, it was, it was great fun. I think Dragon's Den is a wonderful program in the sense that it makes, um, it makes the whole process very, uh, real and understandable. These are real businesses set up by real people and it's real money that we're investing. So it's, it's a lot more real than the apprentice. Um, but the choice of companies that come on it and and that means that, uh, means that you, um, yeah, I mean, it does get sort of a slightly over, oversimplified. The bit that I often struggle with is when people poo-poo the valuations of, of, of companies. And I, and I often imagine if I had gone on to Dragon's Den um, <laughs> with Moonpig in year two, and I said, look, I'm, I'm looking for some money. That's great. Okay, so what, what, how much, how, what revenue did you make last year? Um, £90,000. What was your gross margin? £45,000. <laughs> okay, how much money did you make? We lost £1.1 <laughs> Okay, and how much do you value the business at? Um, Three yeah. million. Yeah, I, 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 embarrassment I all round, right? There'd be no's, uh, and the public would know. It'd be all be a you know egg on the face, wouldn't it? But, but I mean, the thing is that they, they would have uh, if I'd gone on with that proposition two years into starting Moonpig, I would have been laughed out of Dragon Stand by someone like Peter Jones because you know my valuation was ridiculous. But I did raise money at a valuation of three million pounds, and those people made sixty times their money. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, so, well, you're making so, this is my problem with Dragon. I go off and on the show. I mean, I love it and I don't love it. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, I like it because it raises awareness of entrepreneurship, but I also don't like the fact that it's kind of made people think that I've got a business idea. I'll just go raise money, you know, and 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 then sell fifty percent of the company and realise that actually now they're working for that person really. Um, and yeah. they don't own it. And then this like it's, it's the, the, the interesting thing here. That the other thing I want to make sure I don't forget to say that your your history. You know, you when you sold your business Moonpig to Photobox, the, the thing I read about was that there was an earlier meeting that you had with the founders of Photobox where they where you wanted a lot more money than they were asking but they ended up paying a lot more money than you were asking back then right so that's a, that's a point about valuation that's pretty interesting there too yeah your experience of selling the company what was that like um it was it was interesting well, I mean as was a very um movie was a very very conservative valuation in the sense that we were making a lot of money uh we were making I think um oh, it was 11 or 13 million uh, profit profit you know, which is something that doesn't not EBITDA, profit. Um, and, and that's Such an old that word I, now, isn't it? Profit. I, I, it's, I, I feel very old fashioned when I talk about, when I talk about pre-tax profit. No one ever talks about pre-tax profit, but, but uh, EBITDA covers, uh, hides a multitude of sins. Um, and we were, we, were pay, we were paying dividends of 12 million pounds a year at the point that we sold Moonbeam. So when we sold it for a hundred and, we'd taken 30 million out of dividends, but we sold for 120. Um, it was a, it was a mod. I think it was, it was eleven times. It was eleven times uh, pre-tax profit, which is actually a very sensible conservative valuation. Um, I now see when I see businesses trading for uh, two hundred times their revenue, I, I, it, it blows my mind. Um, you I, sold I'm it too cheap, then that. basically. So, you know, you should have waited a few years till till models got out of control. Yeah, I mean, there's always that question, though. You, you reach a point with a business where you think. Okay, so we're doing really, really well now. But there's a whole load of things that could happen that could stop us. And if I sell now, it's 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 enough money. It's enough money for me to do whatever I want to do in my life. Um, but if I stop, if I don't sell, 
and everything falls off a cliff and I end up with nothing. I'm going to start all over again. So, so that was the, that was the, the support. And it enabled me to go off and do lots of other really interesting things. Mm. So, um, uh, you know, people will often, particularly in the light of Moonpig floating for a billion now, um, I'm sure people will say, oh, don't you wish you would have hung on to it? But it would have stopped me. It would have prevented me from doing all the other interesting things that, I'm doing, that I've done in the last 10 years. I think this is really an important point to a lot of our listeners um, aren't just people that want to start businesses. They're people that have businesses. And sometimes people get trapped in their businesses. They, they think, yeah. you know, they, they actually don't love them anymore, but that's what they've got. So they're kind of just like working for someone. They end up kind of in a trap. And I think yeah. what you're talking about there is it's important to highlight that you can sell it. You can quit. Yeah, you might not make a fortune from it, but there's other things you can do. The, 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 the other thing is I need to be excited about the things that I'm doing. Right. And, and I, I, you know, Moonpig was a great business and I loved it. And I loved the team there. Um, and that's perhaps the one thing I do miss is having a, a, a is, is, is actually the, the team of going into the office. There's a whole bunch of people that I've chosen. They're my team and, and we work together and it's, it's great fun. Um, but I did feel as though I'd added everything I could add to, to, to Moonpig. And so me staying on was much more a question of a lack of imagination than, than anything else. Um, whereas I, I, I left and I went into the charity sector for a while, um, went off became the CEO of a charity. That was a whole other learning curve. Um, uh, I think the, the one, what I've learned since then is that once you've made a certain amount of money, um, buying stuff doesn't really, it, it, buying stuff is more attractive when you haven't got the money to buy it. But actually when you can have the stuff, you just stop buying stuff. Um, but the one thing you can never tire of is learning. And, um, and I, I went into the charity sector and spent, it was a fascinating education. I have a second MBA, but in development. And, uh, and that's a whole experience that I wouldn't have had um, if I hadn't sold I mean, the business modeling in, in, in the charity sector is crazy. It's just it's just all on its head. We're doing well. I'm getting into it now with the library. It's just everything's reverse engineered from the grants that people get, for example, as opposed to like thinking about client first. It's it's kind of kind of completely yes, opposite there's, to business. There's, there's an element of craziness about it. The, the other difficulty is that uh, is that we it makes you realize how simple it is to measure the performance of a business because you have this one uh, at the end of it you can work. I, I could compare a spanner company with a soft drinks company and work out which is a better company. But um, you could take, say, two children's charities, um, Bernardo's and NSPCC, and look at their annual reports. And there's very little in their annual reports that will be able to tell you whether or not uh, they're actually having a more of an impact, mm. you know, which is more efficient as a charity in terms of impact. But um, uh, because simply how much money they raised or how much money they spent is not an indicator of whether or not they were successful. So there was, and I would never have learned that if I hadn't if I hadn't sold and, and gone to do something to do something else. Um, so um, yeah, it, it's all worked out. I'm, I'm very pleased that it's carried on well. Going back to that idea about the best deals, the deals that work out for both sides, when you sell a company and then, you know, if, if you manage to get a fantastic price, but then it dribbles off and dies the next year, um, yeah, that's not something to be proud of. Totally. Whereas actually when both parts come away thinking, the person who bought it for me is very happy with the purchase and I was very happy with, the, with, 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 with it too, so... I think the same motto applies for like raising money. And again, people think in my audience trying to raise money, you know, it's, it's not necessarily just about you getting the best deal for you. It is, it is, I guess, making your investor feel part of it, for example, you know, making them feel yeah. that there's value both sides to be brought to the table other than money, which I think is sometimes well, overlooked. Yeah. And one thing that people often don't take into consideration is uh, if you raise money for a small business that's losing money and you've managed to raise money, the pre-money valuation of 10 million pounds, if you don't deliver a business, say you come, comes to someone comes to offer you eight million pounds for the business, which might be a perfectly decent deal for you, that's a loss for your investor. Um, and happened in one of my investee companies recently. They raised money on, on Crowdcube at, at a valuation of ten million. And to be honest, I thought the business was worth less. But um, and, and the, the problem is that you've got a whole bunch of investors who have been who come in at one level, 
and they're not going to be happy unless you manage to do better than that. Um, so um, it's, it's always very hard to go back to shareholders. You know, I, I, you've done a deal, you've sold the company, you've made a lot of money, and your investors have actually lost money. I'd just like to ask you a, a few more questions before um, sure. before yeah. we, we end. You know, I, I noticed that you're um, impact investing, but what, what does what does Nick Jenkins' day look like now? What, what what's keeping you busy? What are you thinking about? What's happening in the future for you? Well, so I've got a, I've got a portfolio of um, I think nineteen businesses. Um, uh, only two or three of them, which I sit on the board. I mean, my, my view about sitting on the board is that I would only sit on the board of a company if I have a really large stake, and I need. And I need to make sure that I'm seeing what's going on or need to have an influence on it. Other than that, my view is that if a company has, if a, if, if a company um, wants to listen to what I've got to say, um, then it doesn't really matter if I'm a director or not. They can listen to what I've got to say and take it to the board themselves. And if they don't want to listen to what I've got to say, then it doesn't really matter if I'm on the board or not. But if I'm on the board, and this is a, a, an important thing I've learned as an investor, if my name is on the board, I, I then have the responsibility to fight tooth and nail to keep that company alive. If I'm just a shareholder and things start to go awry, I have the option of just saying, didn't work, wander off. Um, so I've, I've often found I'm very wary about joining the boards of companies. So I'm on the board of two or three, of, 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 uh, three companies. And um, uh, though I've got investments in, in 19 and I advise those. Uh, that so I tend to spend a bit of my fair bit of my time um, uh, advising them and also looking at, New, new potential investments. I don't do that many uh, this year. I'm trying to trim my portfolio down. Uh, and then the other half of my time I spend um, on the uh, on the charity sector. I'm a, a trustee of, a, of, a, of a, an African surgical charity. And uh, and I'm also a, uh, a trustee of a multi-academy trust in South London and um, a, a group of nine schools. And, and so that takes up a fair amount of time as well. Um, and... Uh, and it's a good balance. It's a good balance. It's an interesting balance. Though what I've learned is that doing ten percent of ten things is a lot more work than doing one hundred percent of one thing. Mm. Do you a think lot. you'll go back to one hundred percent of one thing at some point? Is it glittery? No, I, I don't think I will. I think I might go back to doing to doing twenty five percent of four things, mm. um, uh, or even three things. But but uh, I, I quite I, I like the variety. I, I like the you know, the hot cold sweet sour variety of doing, of doing different things and also the other thing is the, the, the freedom to be able to stop and take on interesting projects from my i'm in the middle of a big project to to, to make my house in the country uh, completely green and fossil fuel free at the moment so yeah i was I reading think, about that that's amazing yeah that's uh, learning all about uh, uh, so at the moment I, i've got a drilling rig in the garden drilling enormous boreholes down to, to suck the heat out of the earth hmm. um but um <laughs> right um, at the core of the earth get the heat out of the earth that, yeah, that's, that's an a, energy source a very right long there. drill there's a, there's a startup idea right now. We want energy. We're trying to get it from the sun, but just tap into the core. You know, there you go. Well, you, of course, you know, in Bath, you can do that. Um, yeah. uh, it's, it's quite close to the surface. Right, yeah. Um, well, I, I think, uh, you know, just to wrap up, I, I, your, um, your, your future feelings on certain technologies like AI and, and, and these things, I mean, I, I see huge opportunity in um, ed tech. I see huge opportunity in AI. Do you, what, what's your view? What do you see in the future coming that people perhaps should, should give a bit more attention to? Um, well, I, I, you know, AI is a very, very broad thing, broad thing which, which for, for me in particular covers uh, the impact on education. So one of the other companies I'm involved in is an African, an African education business. Um, and um, it's, it's an ed tech business. And that has enormous potential to transform education, uh, particularly in, in low-income countries, um, where 
in a way, you have the luxury of being able to pay a very high, a highly trained, motivated teacher to sit in front of the class. You're, you're, you're better off doing that. But there's a lot of technology that can enable that teacher to teach well. And in an area where you don't have highly trained uh, teachers, that becomes much, much more important. So I think for, for me, that's one of the areas. I don't know whether it's necessarily an easy way to make money, but I do think it's going to be an area which will develop um, very quickly. More so, I think, post-COVID, as everyone realizes that, uh, that we, you know, we need to as everyone's got used to the idea of using tech in, in, in education. Uh, so that's very important. I think, you know, med tech as well is another, that's another area I've, I've invested in, um, where uh, the latest investment I made was a company called Arthronica, where they've developed a way of, um, of, of having remote consulting sessions using AI uh, to, to, to measure movement in people's hands, to measure the movement of joints. And, and otherwise they would have to go to, to see a rheumatologist, which might be, a half day out of their day or a day out of their day to go in for this for this check to be measured. But this this enables, it makes life much, much easier for the rheumatologists um, and it can all be done from uh, from home and it's all considerably cheaper. So the things like that are going to make an enormous difference to the efficiency of our, of our, of our lives. Um, but, you know, AI covers an enormous amount of, of that most of the developments will come using AI, I imagine. Um, yeah, I guess it's a bit uh, like, the, it's a bit know, like the, blockchain. The, it's going to become quite mainstream, really, isn't it, these things? It's, it's not going to be a question it, of whether it, you've it, got it's, a website or not. It's, it's, it's mainstream already, and it's, it's one of those things. It's a bit like there was a difference between internet businesses and non-internet businesses, and now every business is on the internet. Mm. Um, uh, you know, every retail, every shop, virtually every shop, except Primark, I think, um, has a, a web presence. Um, so it, it just becomes a natural part. of It's, it's a part of the plumbing. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, look, Nick, you've given so much of your time to me and the audience. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Just end with one last question, which is if you went back to your younger self and gave some advice, what would it be? Ah, yeah, yeah good question. Is that, is that, oh, yes, that is the bottom of this. Um, um, I, I think the important thing is to, the, the important thing is to enjoy, the, enjoy the journey rather than uh, looking forward to the end. Uh, and that's something I really enjoyed running Moonpig. It wasn't, but too many people look at their company as a lot of pain they've got to go through before the exit. But the exit can sometimes be a bit of an anticlimax, and so yeah, you get very well rewarded. But then the question is, well, what next? Um, and uh, and so enjoying the journey itself is a really is a really important thing. I think I'm, I think on balance, I've done that. Um, I've enjoyed it as I went along. Um, um, but the you know the other really important thing is is it's you never. You never get tired of learning. Well said. Um, I, the, the enjoy the journey bit, just I, I just can't say it enough. Uh, I just it's so important. I think it's got lost as well. Again, in this um, get rich quick uh, system, like Bitcoin. Someone said to me the other day, "I'm going to do Bitcoin or start my own business. Both are going to cost twenty six thousand pounds to buy one Bitcoin and start a business. What should I do?" Like, of course, start your own business. You know, it's, you're going to learn a lot. Yeah. Buying Bitcoin, you're just going to stare at a screen and have happy days and sad days based on what a screen says. But, you know, I, 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 the, bit, the Bitcoin thing, I, I, I do feel more like a dinosaur, but I look at Bitcoin and think, I, I, I just... Um, I just don't. I just don't get it. But it's kind of a new version of stocks, isn't it? It's it's just a slightly flashier upside is huger, no back... Well, it, well, except that behind the stock is a company that makes things that makes a profit. Yeah, the yeah. Every stock, there is a. Yeah, I know what you mean. Even yeah, you're true. I mean, Bitcoin. The argument is the opposite. The benefit of Bitcoin is it doesn't have that. It doesn't have any anything holding it back. You know, and and but it's it's kind of sad that entrepreneurship is is getting boiled down to making money. And your point there about enjoy the journey is actually what it's about. It's yeah. just so important. There's something very enjoyable about building a team of bright, 
motivated people and working with them, um, it's stimulating. It's exciting. It's a journey that you go on with with, with everybody in your team. And and um, uh, if there's the one thing I miss about being in a portfolio owned one is that is that I, I deal, of course, with the companies that I that I have stakes in, but I don't have one place to go to where I have a bunch of a bunch of bright people who are excited about what they're doing. Um, it's a sense of purpose and and. Um, uh, and I think there is there is too much focus on 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 exit. That's largely because businesses are businesses are funded by funds that need an exit within the life of the fund. If I look at the two of the businesses that I admire the most, the White Company and and uh, and, and uh, Charles Stewart shirts, husband and wife team, neither of them have raised any money for their businesses, um, and they have built the most extraordinary businesses. Hugely profitable, very successful businesses. It's like you're doing uh, a commercial for me, by the way, because that is the next podcast after you. Who's that? Oh, Which one? You? Nick, Nick or Christy? I'm Nick. Ah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so what? I mean, they, they are they, they are sort of a couple of my entrepreneurial um, uh, heroes in that they 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 both both having successful businesses you know within the same family. It's quite incredible. They've kept them. They run them. Um, and the great thing about doing that, about not raising money, is that it's 100 percent yours, so you can keep it forever. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I, it's, I, it's, it's underrated, are, um, isn't it? It's so underrated that that whole concept. I say it's getting a bit lost. So it, it's great to have you on and share those points. And it's, it's one of it's, it is one of the, one of those things that I that I really uh, um, I, I, I I really admire businesses that have that have started small, have grown organically, and done entirely organically without external funding because that is a that is a real drive. Patience, yeah, is not it? But um, look, I'm going to sum up a few things um, that I've I've taken away from today's. Uh, podcast um you know it's not all about winning i think there's so much more uh, to it than that um you know don't overspend um it's not all about raising money sometimes having no money can be a really powerful asset to you as a business i don't think you just need to raise money i think um being held to account as entrepreneurs i think we all resist it but uh what nick said today i think is so true sometimes having people hold to account is a way of training you a way of learning I've always learned by having customers give me feedback, for example, you know, being held to account is very valuable. Don't resist it. Of course, make sure the person that's holding to account, um, you know, you can have a laugh with and hopefully you can shrug off uh, any, any bad feeling it can cause having honest conversations. But, but having someone that holds you to account is really powerful. I think, um, you know, don't screw your customers despite business models out there doing it right now. Um, make decisions. I think that's crucial absolutely crucial um, if you're sitting there wondering what to do you sit there so long you run out of cash wondering what to do um, you know do think about shutdown costs try to build moral code into your business I know you don't hear it very often I know it's not an exciting you know clickbait item um, you know here my shutdown cost slide but it'd be interesting I think psychologically to show what you what actually matters to you exit or, or looking after your people I think enjoy risk all in this is the kind of theme I think from Nick today um, if you really want to be successful I couldn't believe in it more if you've got that fire in your belly that's all you need Thank you for listening to the Purposeful Project podcast today. If you got any value from this podcast, then do feel free to give us a review and give us your feedback. And if you think anybody out there might enjoy this story of this real-life successful entrepreneur, then feel free to share. And of course, go and visit purposefulproject.com and join our mailing list at any point. Thanks again for listening.